Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before Us Like a Land of Dreams is a new novel from Karen Anderson. It follows a disheartened mother traveling an evocative route through the arid west. As her narration fades, the ancestral dead speak directly. The ragged Mormon boy yearns after Shoshone family. A defeated polygamous wife shuts her mouth for good. A hoarder's queer son demolishes the artifacts of his lonely Idaho childhood. Descendants of British squatters sustain family delusions until a devastating suicide shatters their royal dreams. An elute colonial tribe made from New England green gradually awakened to the stark blue of the Great Salt Lake. The dead yield no answers. They simply conjure bright, mortal moments set in iconic and diminishing American places. The author is uh, Karen Anderson. Uh, who uh, teaches at Utah Valley uh, University. Karen Anderson has uh, joined us in studio. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Karen Anderson, you describe yourself uh, as, as a professor, mother, heretic, uh, several other uh, descriptions. Uh, you uh, grew up in Utah Valley, I believe. I did. I grew up in Alpine. Um, so... This book is very, very interesting. Um, I want to start maybe with this quote. Uh, Assembling timelines into uh, fictional lives felt audacious. That's what you did. (laughs) These are your ancestors, right, for the most part? Mostly. Almost every character in the book has uh, an actual documentable precedent. Um, I found a lot of dates and uh, wandered through a lot of places and assembled the skeletal plots and stories from as much research as I possibly could. And then I brought the best of my human imagination to it. So Audacious was breathing life into people who truly can't speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a way, this is honoring them. The best I know how, Yeah, yeah. certainly. Uh, And so, uh, well, let me back up. Let me uh, have you tell the story of how this all started. A call from your mother? (laughs) Sure. Sure, I can start that way. Um, My mother is committed to genealogy in all the best ways and the ways that uh, her cultural heritage really values. Um, It's very important to her that she assembles all of the right people and dates and marriages and children, and that her doctrine says that all of these people need to be assembled on the other side of this life as well as, as this one here. Um, I've kind of gone beyond or outside of that belief a bit, so I was a little bit annoyed when I was on sabbatical (laughs) that she called and wanted me to put together um, kind of a puzzle or kind of a a locked-in place in her genealogy. Um, It was in Ohio, I think for her, four generations back, Um, two brothers and two sisters who married each other in sort of a zigzag pattern. Um, One set, uh, death of a wife, the next set, death of a husband, and then eventually a couple who had really kind of inherited that that long family legacy. So we figured it out. We figured out who was married to who, and I thought I was done, and then I couldn't stop. It was so fascinating to me. Um, So I kept asking questions, and kind of went off in my own directions and for my own purposes for this. But mm. it was it was really it was incredibly compelling and I was stunned how much information I could find about very long lost people on the internet. What uh, of course this began with a request from your mother mm-hmm. um by the way uh I guess a lot of people's idea of sabbatical if they're not in academia is you got mm. the year off, right? Right, right. <laughs> I yeah, and I was I actually thought I was working on another project. Yeah. Um and this derailed it. I, I yeah. really sort of turned my whole heart and most of my research and time to this, to what became this book. Mm-hmm. And that once I figured out the Sprague family, then I really kind of remembered other pockets that felt extremely evocative or really productive uh, stories I'd inherited that sort of tapered off and trailed. So I kind of went looking for the mysteries. Mm-hmm. So mysteries, what, mm-hmm. what were you after, do you mm-hmm. think? It probably took a little while to... Yeah. Maybe decide that you were really going to go full bore into this. But what were you looking for? A uh, mystery to me in this case was thinking about all the ways, of course, old or traditional or passed down stories taper off right about the point they get really, really compelling or 
interesting or human and that so you get little kind of moments of super high clarity little events in people's lives and then the story stops and you just don't have anything else on that so maybe another mystery for example is the the uh, suicide of my father's uncle um, that man haunted my father his whole life and he'd make mention of him and tell us little pieces about an uncle that he loved and um but the, the suicide was so painful and so shameful within the family that the story always just sort of stopped. In fact, really deliberately, we really don't want to talk about that. That's 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 something that's really not worth that we shouldn't dwell on. So again, my I guess my perverse instincts decided to uh, move toward all the stuff I shouldn't be dwelling on. Mm-hmm. And that I mean that that does something to us, doesn't it? it <laughs> Even though the the uncle's long dead, it, mm-hmm. I mean. That story is living on in a painful way in your father. Yeah. yeah, I think I think again, maybe getting back to mysteries, the quest, the hard, mysterious questions are: who are these people as they live in us right now? And that, and that became an especially poignant question for me. As oh gosh, as I thought about what these invisible generations handed to my children, how much they probably do live in us chemically and genetically and in terms of certain kinds of family memories and patterns of what we value, what we don't value, what we can and can't see. And in that sense, the stories seem to be the best possible places to read some of those clues. Mm-hmm. Um, that is interesting that the – and you talk about ghosts – Yes. <laughs> right? And, and so in, in the sense that's we, we all have ghosts. Yeah, I was raised with the idea that they were, you know, spirits and quite literal. And again, I, I have a lot of respect for, for my family who see these people as still existing somewhere. But I, for whatever reason, that kind of, that, that way of looking at things dissolved for me quite a while ago. And because of that, I think I kept a lot of these old stories and ghosts at bay um, and till I realized of course stories and memories are ghosts and they really do haunt us and they stay with us and we pass them on and you know see them and don't see them and it, it really became urgent as I thought about what I wanted to give to my children as they went forward as I don't know, some kind of generational legacy so uh, what do your children think of the, <laughs> so, of the book first um, of all yeah, I don't always know. Um, okay. You know, they're 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 fierce and smart mm-hmm. and busy and and um, they're all very very talented artists and writers themselves, um, good thinkers. So as I've talked about these stories, um, a lot of these stories really, we I think they know from much earlier on in their lives when we spoke of them when they were children. Um, again, working. I, maybe I can jump this to my students as well. Yeah. And, um, a few years ago. Quite a few years ago now, um, we lost four of our really beloved students at Utah Utah Valley. Um, not always students, but also part of our just sort of our collective faculty and staff families. And that uh, they drowned all together in a cave at Y Mountain. Um, that really, really shook us up in our in our department and in our school. And I remember the news coverage really kind of like searching to find reasons or ways that uh, these kids maybe just were, had gone astray or something of the kind. And I thought how powerfully those, those four kids were absolutely made by, made by Utah Valley, made by Utah, made by the Wasatch Front, made by this landscape and heritage, even though they weren't quite, um, I don't know, just didn't fit the standard narrative of teenagers and that um, – I think that really, really started to affect me in the sense of so many of my students and so many of the young people along the Wasatch Front, if they aren't exactly what they sort of perceive as being acceptable descendants of pioneer legacies and pioneer heritage, they don't really know how to tell their own stories. They don't believe they have a claim on them. And for me, uh, reading the stories of my students year after year now at Utah, in Utah Valley, um, and watching the ways they struggle, think through their heritage, try to understand their futures, um, really, again, gave me something that felt like a mandate to to remind us all how much these people belong to all of us and, and how diverse they are, how, how really complex they are as human beings and as cultural 
in, in cultural encounters, um, collective memories on that. This, it, this is a heritage that belongs to us all. And so I really worked to see more than I had been handed. And a remarkable array of characters leaped up. They were right there all along. Mm. I just needed to see them. Well, we'll talk about uh, the characters. Some fascinating characters. Um, the, the title's interesting, Before Us, Like a Land of Dreams. Um, tell me about that. What You said what comes before us becomes us. This is yes. one explanation. Sure. Um, well, first I'll give credit to Matthew Arnold. The, the line comes from Matthew Arnold's poem, Dover Beach, The World That Lies Before Us Like a Land of Dreams. Um, I like the title because before us means in front of us and also um, it means past and future in a certain way. It's, it's something that came before us but also is presented or laid out before us. And that, so I really like the before us as I thought about that phrase and that terminology. Matthew Arnold's poem is quite dark. It really kind of talks about just clinging to the beauty of what's right now. And that because it's all illusory, there's nothing really, really safe and no, no, no such thing as true love and true meaning. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but he really struck me very powerfully as a graduate student as being someone who says, look, it's what, look what's right here before us right now and hold on to it. He says, ah, love, let us be true to one another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, um, so it certainly comes from Arnold. Um, for me, it just really sort of opened up what I thought my project was as I was doing this, that we need to answer to what came before us because it, because it will continue to roll over the top of us and move ahead, and that we'll be following its path forever and ever. So well, a lot of my question was what What's sealed into us and what kind of fates and what kind of destinies uh, can we just simply not avoid because of what has come before us? Um, and, and that is true, I expect, even if we're not aware of it? Uh, at least, well, that's part of my question. I think maybe especially if we're not aware of it on that. Um, I, tra- I try to trace certain patterns of what I, what I suspect is a genetic pattern of uh, depression, Maybe in certain elements of my family, I try to trace uh, even genetic questions about um, how my little daughter has such a remarkable throwing arm. And so I uh, gave that ability to uh, throw things very hard <laughs> mm. to several of her ancestors, uh, especially, a, especially a grandmother. Um, so I, th- I think in many ways it goes back to the ghost question. Who's who's haunting us? Who who's inhabiting our bodies? I open up with a biblical phrase. You know, my my name is Legion, for we are many, and I think many many people walk and speak and think and direct our visions and thoughts um, more than we can ever know. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to have you introduce me to some. Okay. Ghosts, as it were, right? <laughs> sure. Um, fascinating characters uh, in the book. It's a novel. Um, principally because the, the stories aren't fleshed out, right? Or, or is there yeah, another reason absolutely. why it's a novel? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but these are people from from your from your uh, your family. Mm-hmm. Before us, like a land of dreams, uh, is the book. Karen Anderson is the author's out from Tory House Press. More following this break. This week on Undisciplined, we're going to chat with a scientist who is trying to solve a big challenge, engineering blood vessels for transplantation into human bodies. After that, we'll talk to a researcher who's trying to solve a challenge that might be even bigger, reducing gender pay disparities in corporate America. The sociologist and the bioengineer, that's Undisciplined, Friday at 2. I'm Hank, and I listen to Utah Public Radio via the radio in Zion National Park and also online at upr.org. Sadistic, poisonous, anti-human, and sneaky. Like a fly on the wall. You wouldn't hear us or you wouldn't see us. How can we mix it up? How can we stir it up? I bugged my car. On the next Radio Lab. A grotesque invasion of privacy. Smile, Smile. you're You're on on handed camera. Join us Saturday morning at, at noon on Utah Public Radio. Smile. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are talking with Karen Anderson. Uh, she is a professor at Utah Valley University and author of a new novel before us, Like a Land of Dreams. It's uh, based on uh, family members from her past. Ghosts, as we've been calling them. And uh, we'll introduce you to some of these uh, people as, as we go along. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Karen Anderson, I want to read a quote from you. This is from an interview you gave with Tory House Press uh, about your research. Uh, this really struck me. You say, the material planet is rife with peculiar artifacts, old memories of old memories, snippets, random anecdotes, weird archives, places, pieces, and parts. In the book, uh, I claim I'm attending to ghosts, but the only way I actually know how to, quote-unquote, commune with the dead is by allowing myself to be absorbed into very real objects, including residual sentences that I can touch, taste, see, hear, and, and smell. So I want to, before we uh, get introduced to some fascinating people in the book, I want to talk a little bit about your, your research. Mm-hmm. Um, so Internet, I imagine, you know, it's a great, yeah. great blessing this way to be, be <laughs> one. You mentioned obscure books, mm-hmm. also on the ground in cemeteries and such. Yes, yes. I did a lot of traveling. I, it, it, um, I think if anything makes these characters real to me and lets me sort of just I don't know, walk into the lives that they actually lived. It is going to the places where they stood on that. I was really, for my, one of my best examples is tracking the Sprague family from New England um, through Ohio and then out to the Tooele Valley, up into Bear River country or Bear Lake country, and then on up into southeastern Idaho. Um, one of my characters, Barbara Sprague, had a son um, who was shot dead by an outlaw out in Tooele Valley when he was 40 years old. And it seems to have really affected the family. So by internet, I tracked a bunch of old newspapers and I found the, the, not just the obituary, but a report on the weather of the day of Festus Sprague's funeral and um, was able to go out there then and stand at his grave and imagine his mother at at that site on that day in the rain. Um, there's something so vivid about that. There's something so powerful about just sometimes standing as closely as I can in the body and place of someone. And so, yeah, between the sort of tandem assets of the Internet and then the ability to drive out and stand in the place, that was probably drove my very best sense of, I don't know, being able to channel someone. Mm-hmm. Well, we had planned on someone else. I wonder if we could change gears, mm-hmm. um, have you read... You mentioned Fess Sprague. Uh-huh. Uh, so page 314. Sure. And uh, maybe just the page over, I don't know, through the Emerson quote? Absolutely. Uh, this is very important to me. <laughs> so. This is this is uh, my channeling of, of young Fess Sprague, who was, again, born in Olive Green, Ohio, uh, traveled out with the Mormons quite early, set up his own family in in the Tooele Valley, and then welcomed his parents quite a few years later as they sort of traveled out from Ohio. And that um, he was quite a remarkable young man, from what I can tell. He'd lost um, a little girl. Uh, the f- whole family really kind of saw a, a spate of tragic early deaths. That Fess Sprague was, as I mentioned, shot by an outlaw out uh, past Grantsville. And so I kind of closed, in fact, I Close most of the, the the voices of the book with with Fess's discussion of his life and his moment of sort of living most vividly on the planet. So this is my woman's voice speaking <laughs> speaking for a man here. In my twentieth year, I left my home in Olive Green, Ohio, and traveled with my older sister and her husband in the Sixth Handcart Company to the Great Salt Lake Valley. Doubtless, the journey was tedious and exhausting, and possibly more dangerous than I perceived, even while my brother-in-law felt compelled to intone over every single white grave we passed along the trail. But I was young and strong. I had neither wife nor children. The events that would define my brief legacy were incipient shades. I rode the fine horse my parents had purchased for me. I carried my rifle and scouted into the country, well beyond the trail to bring back game for the women and children and family men. I gained some sense of the magnitude of America, its forests and rivers and prairies, and its native peoples, whom the prophet Joseph had revealed to be a branch of mighty Israel. 
At the time, I could not know that the span of my life was already at its apex. The world was beautiful, and I moved easy in it. I perceived the truth of grief and time and slipping away, but only secondhand. To me, it was all the more evidence that the earth bore me, here and alive, and a special goodwill. One night in Wyoming, after we corralled the animals and turned to our fires and songs, after the smallest children were asleep and the parents about to settle in their wagons, I stepped away to check my horse. It would be my turn to watch before morning, but I felt enlivened and alert, and I even considered staying awake to read a while by the full moon, which was so bright it cast my shadow crisp on the ground as I walked. When we passed her home in Iowa, my sister Rosamond had tucked a pamphlet in my coat pocket, a long poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I was working to memorize it as I rode the long prairie miles. The eager fate which carried thee took the largest part of me, for this losing is true dying. This is lordly man's downlying. This is his slow but some reclining, star by star, his world resigning. Hmm. I love this line. Uh, at the time, I could not know that the span of my life was already at its apex. Yeah. He and, was exactly halfway through his life yeah. that, that year. Of course, we don't know, in, in our lives, we don't know this. You, mm-hmm. you have perspective yeah. uh, that he did not have. I, I, I think that's, uh, I don't know, sort of a continuing fascinating question to me. Everyone who exceeds us knows the sort of whole timeline of our lives, and we don't ourselves on that. So um, these voices do speak from the grave, in fact, quite literally from the grave. Um, They're all sort of quietly awaiting resurrection as they speak, um, or at least in sort of a limbo place. And So for him, um, well, for all of these characters, they've had quite a bit of time to sort of lie there and think mm-hmm. <laughs> about things. Um, I did, I did, I really loved writing this passage. Um, I got uh, quite a bit about the Sixth Heart Handcart Company and um, the meteorite that shines above him just as he's reading this poem is is an actual event that occurred. Mm-hmm. So a lot of really wonderful things that I just didn't have to, didn't have to fabricate at all. Yeah, yeah. What does that do for you? It, I mean, it connects you to these people, mm-hmm. obviously, Connects them to you in a way, right? Yeah. You you've described the these you say these stories are small resurrections. Yeah, you know, I guess I'm really well. I I guess I have to just get really honest here and say it's pretty terrifying to think it'll all go down. You know, it's made me live a life and hope that my children can live lives and really. Certainly, again, I keep bringing sort of my students as an extension of this. What do I have to give to them? What what gift do we have to give to the next generations? And one is just this in- careful, joyful awareness that we have these moments of just pure beauty and mortality. So for me, the meteorite, for example, um, I have several case, several situations in the throughout the book where someone just stops and feels the environment and feels the world around them and is hyper, hyper aware, kind of in a Virginia Woolf kind of a style, just that moment where you realize what you've been looking for all along was right here, and we, we, we gained the capacity to, to feel it very intensely. Those are really precious moments, and to me it defines, to me it defines what people are and what it means to be alive. And so finding those little moments for a lot of these characters, or at least creating them for them, if nothing else, it maybe doesn't say exactly who they were, but, it, but it, it's, it's witnessing to the fact that they were alive and they were here. Mm. Now you, in turn, will become "quote unquote" ghost dead. Uh-huh. To, to you know, uh-huh, uh, sure. there's that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So. <laughs> As will we all. Um, uh, but you'll live on in the memories so. of your your uh, children, your students. Uh-huh. I hope. You, you, well, yeah, so, I hope they you, forget a few things. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, how do you hope that will manifest so. itself? Mm, maybe this is some kind of an urge to control it by, you know, bringing my own words and my own wisdom. Almost every writer I, I admire, there's a certain point where they say they wrote something because they believe that, or they've they've understood that only their voices will exceed them and only their voices will be what's left of them. So I, I do think writing and painting and making music, anything that we make is is a sort of hearkening toward immortality, some kind of sign that we are here and something we want to give to our our descendants. So even though this, even though this book is about my ancestors, at least technically, it's for it's for my descendants. It's about 
future. And it's about believing that there will be someone here in the future to to still feel and think and read and, I don't know, yearn. Yeah. That resonates with me, um, I think, a lot of people. But uh, I think a lot of times we, we separate the two, don't we? Yeah. The past is past. Mm-hmm. It's not part of the future, although in a way we all understand it is. Or I think we but, sanctify the past, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, maybe what, you know, going back to, you know, how audacious this kind of activity is. And that I I was raised with a lot of stories, and I come from really, really wonderful storytellers. And that, But there's a certain sort of um, constraint that you put on storytelling. And that once somebody's dead, then they, they're... I don't, they simplify. They're either mm-hmm. the bad guy or they were the good guy mm-hmm. or they're all saints or they're all, you know, in a certain way. Um, they, they lose their sort of quirky humanity that, that, and I think that's just inevitable. We don't remember people and so they get encapsulated in these tight little boxes and they can't come out again. And that, so I guess, you know, maybe that's what a coffin's all about. Yeah, but, right, right, could be. But in, in could that be, sense, yeah. giving them stray moments and giving them, you know, for me, if there's anything I can learn from people who came before us is how they dinked their way through the planet the same way I'm trying to dink my way through. Yeah. There's value in these stories, right? The family stories uh, on your website, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, uh, Karen Anderson author. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it? Uh, dot, I always, dot com. Karen Anderson author dot com. Karen with an I. Um, you link over to an interesting article in uh, from Atlantic Magazine, Elaine uh, Reese, uh, what kids learn from hearing family stories. Mm-hmm. The value, you know, we, we know there's value to reading fictional stories to children. Mm-hmm. There's value, she's saying, and I, I'm sure you agree, mm-hmm. since you linked it to hearing family stories. Absolutely. And that, and again, it's, it's, this is such a cultural value I was raised with that um, it's hard for me to even wrap. I like that article because it, it articulated something that was almost so close to me in my experience that... Um, I don't think I really understood what a cultural, what a cultural, I know you say the things that we get from our ancestors and how they walk around in us and that um, I was just raised in a culture that cherishes its ancestry. Mm-hmm. We, if, if you were raised in you know, the West, but certainly in Utah and especially in a Mormon tradition, um, you sort of, you know the names of your ancestors. You know them way, way back. You can trace them back to their origins. You can trace them generation by generation. Everyone's searching for them. And that. so at least those presences stay quite real, at least the suggestion of that. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I, uh, I, I rejected that for a long time and really kind of tried to flee it. Um, couldn't because you can't really get rid of what makes you. Yeah, um, yeah. So as I circled back, again, I really kind of tried to understand, you know, something that, that this article is saying that, we don't need saint stories. We need human stories. Yeah. Earlier you said you you, you try to make it more diverse, right? We, mm-hmm. we tend to, in our families, edit, simplify. Sure. Make uh, ourselves be, the only people in the story. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes less diverse than it really was, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. And it was, it was again, just opening my eyes to that. Uh, it's something that I guess I knew in principle. But as I, as I went back on stories that felt very familiar, I realized I didn't know very much at all about any of them to put them in context. Like, for example, I mentioned in the first few pages, I, I spent some of my childhood in Perry, Utah, um, went to first grade there. As I went back on all of the stories, Mattaway and Perry and Brigham City and up here in Cache Valley, I kept hearing the Indians, the Indians, the Indians, and the Indians were in I was shocked to realize I wasn't sure I could name which people were here. And that, so my time researching the Shoshone heritage and the Shoshone background in this region was just stunning. And what struck me most was how much the Shoshone people and the Anglo settlers lived lives in close proximity for quite a long time. And so the Bear River Massacre was personal. It was very, very real. And it was a shocking change in the sort of interaction of two different groups of people who called this place home. And that, so I write, um, for example, um, Great White Chief in the immediate aftermath of the Bear River Massacre and just really considered, again, how... I almost thought like Google Earth. You know, you mm-hmm. look on top, you look from way up above, but when you bring it down to the ground level, who would you see who would 
who would you encounter? What kind of people are actually on the ground as you walk through that terrain? And it was breathtaking to realize how how limited in some ways the the stories have been. If you joined us, we're talking with Karen Anderson. Her new novel is called Before Us, Like a Land of Dreams. It's uh, based on her family, her ancestors. Uh, maybe you could read another passage for us. Sure. Let me think. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> well, have you uh, set something up here? Sure. Maybe I'll stay with. Um, maybe I'll stay with the Sprague family since we're kind of. They don't need as much backup. Um, this family really struck me, and I, I call this, I call the final story an invocation, um, even though it's the final story, largely because they come before almost every other family in this book, and yet in many ways, therefore, they open up the sort of, I don't know, motion to the West that so profoundly defines my family and my, my world experience. And so two sisters, Barbara and Millicent, born in Providence. Um, they were twins, as far as I can tell. And, um, Millicent married their first cousin, Silas Sprague, and died within a, just a few months of her marriage. Um, after the family moved out to Ohio, then Barbara, the twin sister, married, the, ma- married her sister's husband. They had one little girl named Rosamond, um, and Silas was killed by lightning on the day she was born. Wow, wow. <laughs> really one of the just stunning revelations <laughs> of the research in that. So Barbara and Silas's younger brother, Festus, marry and have several children, join the Mormon church in Ohio for quite mysterious reasons as far as their neighbors could see it. And as I said, this, these are the parents of, of young Fest Sprague. Um, this is the night that Barbara and the older Festus and all of their children are sleeping on Red Butte, um, on the plateau of Red Butte above Salt Lake City, just before they're going to descend in the valley and start a new life. Make sure I can give you the right one here. Just a reminder, this is from Before Us Like a Land of Dreams, authors uh, Karen Anderson. Next morning we awoke and descended with the rising sun behind us. The long shadow of the mountains pulled off the flat valley bed like a lavender coverlet. Young Fess had a little cabin nearly built for us in the Tooele Valley, 40 miles further west in a new settlement with an unsettled name. But the year was troubled by the federal march and Indian anger, so the whole town, once 20 wells, then Willow Creek, now trying out its new name Grantsville, was evacuated. We waited several weeks in temporary quarters in Salt Lake with Fess and his wife Lydia before traveling a short day west. On that day, we followed the arc of the salt-aproned waterline, then took a sharp turn southward to our new home. For a while, it was small and rustic living, more like bivouac than habitation, but I confess I was almost regretful that the conditions improved, something cleansing in my mind about making do. The more I acclimated, however, the more I found myself trying to convey this strange yet strangely familiar landscape to my dead sister, buried deep in the fertile soil of olive green. I worked continuous words in my mind, straining to describe to her the granite fortress of Deseret Peak, its upper walls so sheer the snow could not cling. I had long told my husband Festus to stop dwelling over the dead, but in this distant place, Millicent became less and yet more a part of me. Speaking to her was a way of talking myself into clearer states of mind. I tried to explain how the West Mountains contoured the bottom edge of sky at sunset. High evergreen forests packed in angular canyons and lining the northward slopes. I described the sheer blue barrier that rose between us and the Salt Lake Valley, cutting into the shifting pools of uncertain shoreline. There was no means to depict to an unmade girl lost in the deciduous hues of old Ohio, the glittering sheets of shoreline salt, the unrippled mirror of the famous brine lake evaporating in the desert sun, the barren geometry of islands inverted in the depthless mercury. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, That must have been uh, jarring, inspiring. (laughs) Yep. Uh, To to come from Ohio and encounter (laughs) this arid land. It must have felt like coming to another planet. Yeah. Especially when I, shores of the Great Salt Lake, I don't know, somehow that vision must have been absolutely life-altering. It must have felt like 
maybe dying and coming back to another world. Yeah. Um, there's an interview here with uh, that you gave to uh, your publisher, Tory House Press. I like a couple of these questions. I'll ask these of you uh, together. How does landscape shape your characters, and how has landscape shaped you? Mm, well, since I'm the one who's actually speaking for all of my characters, then probably the answer's nearly the same. Um, I think as I answered there, I can probably embellish, but probably turn off of it a bit as well. Um, Willa Cather is famous, for example, for making landscape. In fact, one thing I learned as an English major here at Utah State is that Willa Cather makes lands the American landscape almost a character in her work and her stories. I thought about that here, and my twist on that answer is that none of these people can be themselves except as they've been formed and created by the landscape. I think I think this is one of the reasons that I feel such a powerful affinity for Tory House and their project of speaking for the West, its past and its future, and speaking for the environmental West. And that these people were made. I have a scene that comes directly from one of my grandmother's memories of children skiing to school in Idaho and standing there at the sort of ridge of a little draw and watching coyotes take apart a, a doe. Um, standing there and waiting for the coyotes to finish, and then skiing over the blood-soaked path. You know, um, these people wake up to the Teton Mountains every single morning, or they wake up to the Great Salt Lake, or they've traveled the continent by foot and have encountered it so much more slowly and potently than we have. Um, the Shoshone people died in their beloved river um, in January. Uh, it's impossible for these people to be themselves, except as they're tied to the landscape. I think we're losing that now, and I think it's incredibly urgent. Maybe if there's one truly urgent message I wanted to bring in this book is we lose our landscape. We lose ourselves, we lose our heritage, and we certainly lose our future, but we lose ourselves as human beings. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, and you made reference to this mm-hmm. uh, today, it seems possible to live our lives sort of disconnected from landscape. Absolutely. We can live inside all of the time. We work. We we work on the Internet. We work in air-conditioned buildings. Uh, we seem to be busily developing every stray plot of natural land, at least on the Wasatch Front. Um, I know we have to... I know we have to live in cities. I know we have to, especially in the Wasatch Front, we have to sort of cluster up where the water and the jobs are. And that, But we're so, we're so connected to this landscape. I think, I think we can hold on to that love and to that legacy and to that passion and to the harsh reality of the landscape we live in enough to create a future that integrates the environment rather than shuts it out and closes it out. But we live in a harsh environment, mm-hmm. and I think maybe sometimes our ancestral memories, um, we sort of gain our identity of the landscape through our ancestors' trials, but then we avoid them ourselves. And then I'm not necessarily saying we need a lot of trials, but we need to get out and burn in the summer sun once mm-hmm. in a while. We need to freeze our toes off. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you've anticipated a question. <laughs> I was going to ask, do we periodically have to get out so. in the harsh landscape to... To really connect with it. I think we do, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't think we have to put ourselves and our kids in danger, but, um, you know, there's an awful lot of research and, and time and attention on this. My son actually graduated in outdoor recreation management from Utah Valley, and he had a wonderful experience. Right now he's working in uh, Colorado with Rocky Mountain Field Institute um, in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. Um I remember talking to him a lot during his sort of most thoughtful passages in his major about how desperately children need wilderness contact, natural contact. That um, I believed in that enough to let my kids spend real time in San Rafael Swell, um, out in the sand in you know Capitol Reef, up in the mountains. Kids have a very, very powerful affinity for nature, and they have more endurance for it than we do. Mm-hmm. That they can stay in a cold stream. All afternoon, well, <laughs> we won't put our toes in. That I, I, I think I've stopped even trying to understand the reasons for it. We need, we need landscape, and if we grew up in the West, we're profoundly identified with it. Um, 
I, uh, like I said, I grew up in old Alpine. To stand on a high peak and see the whole world as you understand it, I think is a profoundly, profoundly spiritual experience. Experience, And I don't throw spiritual around too casually. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Karen Anderson. Uh, she is a professor at uh, Utah Valley University. Author of a novel, Before Us Like a Land of Dreams, published by Tory House Press. It's based on her uh, ancestors. We'll take another break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about um, Olaf Larsson. Oh, yes. A, I love a Olaf. photographer. And we'll get into uh, talking about that and, and maybe some other of your ancestors. Uh, more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education Farm Bureau Young Farmers and Ranchers Club helps students become impactful leaders, develop personal growth, and expand their opportunities in agriculture. The ensemble playing this piece calls it a can-can in space. So grab your dancing shoes and dust off your spacesuit. We're going on a musical trip to the moon with composer Jacques Offenbach and the group Windsync on the next Performance Today from APM. That's tonight at 9 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Peter Sagal. If you're a Democratic candidate who didn't make next week's debates, don't worry. Just tell people you were the old white guy standing next to Elizabeth Warren. Who can tell the difference? Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Saturdays at 9 on UPR. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment now with Karen Anderson, author of a new novel, Before Us Like a Land of Dreams. It's uh, based on uh, her ancestors. Um, And Karen Anderson uh, teaches at Utah Valley uh, University. If you'd like to join the conversation, you uh, can. uh, UPRaccess at gmail.com. UPRaccess at uh, gmail.com. I want to, before we get into um, Olaf Larsson... um, this quote from your biography on your website uh, struck me. By the way, uh, KarenAndersonAuthor.com. Uh, you say, you tell your students at Utah Valley University that their creative lives must be founded on metaphors of collage. Pieces, snippets, cuts, juxtapositions, fluencies and convergences, departures and defamiliarizations, strains of remembrance and hope. You go on to say it makes little sense to them because, alas, they're young, (laughs) but Professor Anderson remains insistent. (laughs) Resonates a little more with me because I'm older. (laughs) Um, Comes to get us, doesn't it? (laughs) It it comes to get us, yes. And I love this this line resonates with me, departures and defamiliarizations. Yes, absolutely. Um, we can't write about our home places or what we're familiar with until we see it from the eyes of a stranger. Um, and I think maybe the eyes of a wise stranger. Um, so for me, writing a lot of these stories was, uh, rather than going directly for the sort of key or the, the, the central thread of the stories as I inherited them, I looked for... Uh, characters who sort of stood to the side or who were affected or who were created as the other people or just the, the sort of convenient people in our in our sort of stories about ourselves and let them tell the stories from sort of an outside perspective. And that Olaf, Olaf Larson really is my snippets, pieces, collage, remembrances, defamiliarizations guy on that. Um, I want to make it really clear. I know some things about Olaf Larson. He's not, he's not my direct ancestor. I sat in my grandmother's attic in Ashton, Idaho, and um, my siblings and I and, our, and cousins entertained ourselves with these beautiful stereos, old stereoscope viewers. And my grandma had a huge, like, apple crate full of stereoscope images. Um, in fact, a lot of them are preserved up in the Ashton archive if anyone ever wants to go take a gander. But um, a lot of the photographs were made by lots of different people, but a lot by Olaf Larson, um, who was from Squirrel, Idaho, just outside of Ashton, um, an, an uneasy farmer and a sort of an object of gossip and speculation by a lot of his neighbors. Um, but really, coming out of that region, one of the most sort of astute and sensitive artists that I, that I could track down. Um, 
a lot of his photographs are archived with the Smithsonian Institution, and he has this just beautiful eye for a landscape that's right on the verge of, of, sen- of the change of the turn of the century. and that. So um, I spent quite a bit of time researching him, um, but every, every voice and every motion, I also collided his story with another sort of wish-fulfillment fantasy of... Um, <laughs> what to do with all of the artifacts of a museum in Lehigh that I visited when I was a child. Just an incredible collection of Western artifacts and Western pieces. But, you know, collected by a guy who could just pick things up off the ground and keep them, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's sort of our question, again, about white collectors <clears throat> on a landscape. And that. So um, I kind of collided um, Olaf's talent for photography, but I gave him an entirely fictionalized father based on another person. Mm. And that... Um, Olaf, a lot of the a lot of the uh, kind of gossipy little snippets about Olaf from his hometown people really kind of suggest he was queer. Um, he died in San Francisco in 1970. He's a very dapper, uh, very talented, very gifted sort of Western wanderer, and that. So I I was fascinated by him as the kind of ancestor who's more of a an aesthetic ancestor, uh, more of a professor kind of an ancestor. In fact, a lot of the people, my grandmother said he should have been a professor instead of a, a farmer. <laughs> um, he just he just really struck me. And his friends, who I named uh, Leon and Velma Wheelwright, were also people who really seemed to kind of have an affinity for that. They loved music. They had an incredible music collection. Um, they brought bi-wing airplanes into the, <laughs> into the farmscape. They're just a really powerful artistic flair. Mm. I was struck by uh, you, you have uh, right in the voice of Myrtle Lentz. Mm-hmm. She says, because I vanished so early, I appoint myself here to be the voice of Olaf's pictures. <laughs> yes. I, I love that construct. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah um, and all, Myrtle is, uh, is my, my mother's mother who died when my mother was only four years old. She is only memory. And that's so I remember combing those photographs thinking – uh, with my sister, maybe she's there. Maybe she has. Maybe maybe we're looking at her, or maybe we're seeing a day that she was there at those places. So photographs as being another way of, of claiming these very bright, vivid moments that that vanish, holding on to little pieces of time. And you have Myrtle say, "I wonder whether Olaf ever experienced a moment in its original presence, or postponed every thrill until its photographic return." <laughs> right has a great resonance for uh, today. Absolutely. And I I think a a real question for um, the artist tribe that I live with. Again, uh, I I teach creative writing writing students. Um, My children live in a very artistic world and milieu. Um, And one of my questions always about art is the sort of urge to preserve a moment at the expense of living in it and in it. In that, in that moment of just being present and alert and aware. Always a haunting question to me about art as we postpone the, the moment of thrill or joy or examination or experience by putting it to a camera. We, we mediate it in a certain way. So mm. in some ways it's a way of critiquing my own work here too. Um, I guess especially for an artist, especially for sure. a writer, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what you traffic in, right? So how do you strike that balance? Uh, I don't think we do. (laughs) I think we live in a sort of constant paradox of how to attend to attend to the sort of exquisite mystery of being alive in our time. That's uh, uh, maybe sounds kind of romantic, but I I can't think of another way to I can't think of another way to frame it. Mm. Uh, We just have about uh, three minutes left. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone uh, a particular character in the book that you'd like Mm to tell me briefly about? So maybe especially you had uh, yeah, you know, fun researching. Yeah, you know, I think um, Peter Nielsen uh, really, really was a, a powerful discovery for me. And that um, Peter Nielsen shows up in the – in fact, he's the, the namesake, the eponymous great white chief. I read a tiny piece about him. He's not he, – he is my great-great-great-grandmother's oldest son, uh, born illegitimately in Denmark, um, seems to be part of my own sort of lineage and heritage, but also someone who sort of struck out in his own way. And it was a, it's a fierce and, and um, 
angry and beautiful and talented family, but Peter seems to have sort of become a person made out of the same recipe, who found a way to live very, very vivid moments. And then the story closes down with his remarkable, very real moment of watching 22 elephants fall into the Snake River and retrieve themselves. And Peter seems to be the guy, at least as I created him and as I could read him and then sort of turn him into what I wanted. The man who can stand in the moment and take incredible joy in it. So maybe that's a good, maybe he's a good follow through on this particular conversation. Someone Mm -hmm. who just seemed to be very, very happy to be along for the ride, even though he'd had a pretty rough life and really suffered some real abuse as a child. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, I kind of hold Peter up there in certain ways as someone who can choose choose his own route. By the way, I can't just leave the elephants there. Mm-hmm. Um, with this <laughs> elephants in the Snake River? Yeah, isn't that great? Is a circus? What is this? Oh, oh circus came in. Uh, I read different versions. Of course, I went with the most marvelous and dramatic. Um, 22 elephants stampeded in sort of, you know, a, a snap in the wind. And that uh, ran toward the river. Some of them jumped in on purpose. And some of them just fell as the bank collapsed. Everyone thought they'd drown, but they put their noses up and traveled under the river and came back out. <laughs> so that's a, what that's a pure a, joy to find that story. Wow, that's a great image. Uh, just a couple of minutes left. I wonder, so you embarked on this journey. Your mother gives you a call saying, hey, <laughs> use your sabbatical time so. to research this ancestor. And it became, you know, very meaningful to you. And now at the, I don't know, I don't want to say the end of this journey, mm-hmm. but uh, at this point in this journey, what what has this Where meant to you? Go? You know, again, it's been pretty amazing to see all of this come up out of my very quiet moments and quiet hours and sort of personal anxieties about writing all of this. I, I was really engrossed in this as an extremely kind of quiet private project. To work with Tory House, to have those people on that staff, really remarkable group of people, um, recognize what I wanted to be doing with this, uh, be able to articulate the the resonance that they felt and guide this up into the public. One of the things that I guess what right now is just the amazement of seeing um, seeing hearing these voices and watching the response and that I, I think they speak for themselves. I feel like the book has gotten away from me and now, as Roland Barthes says, the author is dead <laughs> <laughs> and the text the text continues to speak and that so it's been powerful to see how many people really do lean in and are struck by the familiarity of these stories. So there's something uncanny, I think, that really stays with me and, and uh, I don't know, yeah, it's given me a bond, a return to my home roots that I, that I think I severed for a long time. Hmm. We'll leave it there. We're out of time. The book is Before Us Like a Land of Dreams. It's uh, published by Tory House Press. The author, uh, Karen Anderson, has joined us in studio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you Thank so you much. so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Next time on Ask Me Another, we have the Queen of Bounce, Big Frida. She reveals what it's like to get a phone call from Beyonce and gives advice for aspiring twerkers. Can anyone twerk? Yes. Do I need special equipment? No. So join me, Ophira Eisenberg, on NPR's Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions. Saturday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.